following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. This morning we're looking at verses 14 through 21. Acts chapter 2, verses 14 through 21. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you. Give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams even on my male servants and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy and I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Let's pray. Father, we come to this moment and we confess that we are longing for you as the deer longs for the flowing streams so our souls long for you oh God you are my God earnestly I seek you my soul thirst for you. My flesh longs for you like a, in a dry and weary land where there is no water. But I have seen you in the sanctuary. I have beheld your power and glory because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. I'll sing songs to you as long as I live be satisfied as with the richest of foods. Oh God, we come to you. You are our exceeding joy. You are our supreme source of satisfaction. All else in this world is a a drought, a famine. And we are thirsty, so we come to the springs of living water and we ask only that we might drink deeply, that we might lift up the cup of salvation and drink and drink and drink. Oh God, how we need you to speak, how we need you to lead us so that we see you and our souls are filled. In Jesus' name. 
Amen. Well, we are in the book of Acts. We've come to Peter's sermon at Pentecost, so let me give you a little bit of a survey of where we've been. Remember in Acts chapter 1, verse 1, Luke tells us what this book is all about. He said in his first book, that is the Gospel of Luke, he wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach. So if the Gospel of Luke was about what Jesus began, then Acts isn't the Acts of the Apostles so much, or even the Acts of the Holy Spirit. It's the Acts of Jesus through the Apostles by the Spirit. That's what Acts is. And you remember that Jesus appeared many times in many different ways to the Apostles, and they were witnesses of His resurrection, witnesses that He's alive. And He was teaching them about the kingdom of God and about the coming of the Holy Spirit. And He was saying, wait, wait in Jerusalem for power from on high. And then He gave them the commission. He said, you're going to be My witnesses when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You're going to be My witnesses in Jerusalem Judea and Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth. And not only did he give them this commission, they they witnessed him ascend into heaven on the clouds of heaven. And then they were told in the same way they saw him going, they're going to see him coming again. And then in verses 12 through 26, we see what the early church is like as they're waiting for Jesus to fulfill his word. They're praying together, devoted to prayer. They're of one accord with one another. They're studying the scriptures and they're obeying the scriptures because they realize Judas needs to be replaced. And so they they call on the Lord and he shows them that Matthias is supposed to replace Judas. And then in chapter 2, we have exactly what Jesus promise would happen. We have Pentecost. And as we've seen in chapter 2, the first 13 verses are all about the event of Pentecost, what happened. But now, verses 14 to 35 is going to be the, the meaning of Pentecost. Because remember, verses 12 and 13 ended with a question what do these things mean? And an accusation. These people are drunk. And so, Peter's going to speak in this Pentecost sermon, verses 14 to 35, and he's going to give the meaning of Pentecost, interpret it. And then, in verses 36 to 41, we're going to see the, the harvest of Pentecost. As the Spirit is given, people are cut to the heart, and 3,000 people, the first fruits of the harvest, come into the church. And then, to close out chapter 2, verses 42 to 47, we get a snapshot of the community of Pentecost. So, the event of Pentecost, and now here the meaning of Pentecost. Peter has three points in his sermon. We're going to take the first one today, but I want to give you an overview of the whole thing first. 
we begin by noting that nobody really believes that this sermon that we have in Acts 2 was everything that Peter said. If you just read through it, it means the sermon would only take three minutes. That's, that's not, not a three-minute sermon. In fact, Luke tells us explicitly it was longer than this in Acts chapter 2, verse 40. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So what we have is we have a, a thumbnail sketch, a snapshot of what Peter said. And how do we structure these verses, 14 to 35? Well, you, have, you have to begin by asking why structure is important. So the, the Greek philosopher Plato talked about public speaking, and he especially emphasized finding the right divisions of a text or of a speech. And he, he used the analogy of a clumsy butcher. He said, when you're a butcher and you're cutting, for example, a chicken, there's natural places, divisions to cut, like at the neck and over here. And he says, if you're a clumsy butcher and you just hack anywhere, you're going to make an absolute mess. And so as we think about what are the divisions here, how do you rightly divide the word of truth? Some people look at this and say, well, the natural divisions here are, that Peter's using these rhetorical forms in Greco-Roman literature. And one of them was the kind of forensic rhetoric in which you'd be pleading your case. So here they're saying, Peter and the apostles are accused of being drunk and therefore, he responds by saying, no, it's not we're guilty of drunkenness. You're guilty of unbelief and murder. You murdered the Son of God. Now, you can see that this approach has some merit to it. That's clearly what Peter does. He shows them that they're guilty of murdering the Son of God. But that's only one thing that Peter's doing. It doesn't capture the whole of the point that Peter's making. Much better would be to observe that in this structure, these natural divisions, that you have three times Peter quotes an Old Testament text. And before each quotation, he has a claim that that Old Testament quotation supports. So by far better would be to see this sermon as having three points, three claims, each one supported by an Old Testament text to say prophecy is being fulfilled. Remember, that's the point. They're asking, what's the meaning of this? And Peter again and again says, it's fulfillment, it's fulfillment, it's fulfillment. So what are the points? The first point would be my text, verses 14 to 21, where Peter shows this is not the work of wine, they're not under the influence of wine. They're under the influence of the Spirit. This is the work of the Spirit. So he makes that claim, and then he quotes from Joel chapter 2, in verses 16 to 21. And then the second point, in verses 22 to 32, Peter shows that Joel 2 and Pentecost is actually pointing to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And then he shows that that's fulfilling Psalm 16. 
verses 25 to 32. But that even is not the whole point of his Pentecost sermon. Because he's saying that the Spirit has been poured out, and you can't understand that without the work of Jesus, and then comes the clincher in point three. He says in verse 33, the pouring out of the Spirit is proof that Jesus has not only been resurrected, but he's ascended. He's seated on high because verse 33 says, he has poured out all that you see and hear. It's showing that Jesus is God. Joel 2 says God's going to pour out the Spirit. Verse 33 says Jesus has done it. Jesus is God. Jesus, the crucified one, raised and ascended, is the one who's doing all of this that you see and hear. Now, what's the main point then of just verses 14, 21. Here it is. Here's the way I would say it. Pentecost is the fulfillment of the prophecy of Joel 2, namely the pouring out of the Spirit and the harvest that comes from calling on the name of the Lord to be saved. I think that's what 14 to 21 is doing. It's the fulfillment of the prophecy of Joel chapter 2, namely the pouring out of the Spirit and the harvest of the first fruits. Remember, that's what Pentecost is, a harvest fest. The harvest that comes as the Spirit is given cuts people to the heart and they call on the name of the Lord to be saved. So let's, let's take this one at a time. I'm going to make the claim. I'm going to show the support and then we're going to see what does this have to say to us today? Point number one, look at the claim in verses 14 to 16. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. So this is what he's doing. Against the accusation, oh, we know why these 120 people are speaking in foreign languages. They're wasted. That's the answer. And Peter shows that that's utterly ridiculous in so many ways, he doesn't give this much airtime notice. He gives it six words. He says, they're not drunk, as you suppose, because it's only the third hour of the day. It's only nine in the morning. And everybody knows that what Jews would do in the mornings, they would have bread, and then in the evening, they would have meat with wine. And he's saying, it's not even the time for that. But isn't he saying more? Isn't this what we see in the Bible and even in the book of Acts, that you have people sometimes who have genuine intellectual difficulties with Christianity? They have questions, and they're honest questions, good faith questions. And whenever people come with those type of questions, we should be patient and welcoming and inviting and answer them. That's not this. You got people here who are not like 
seekers, but scoffers. It doesn't matter that the explanation even makes sense, that you actually even believe it. What they want to do is maintain their position of unbelief, and so anything is better than a supernatural explanation, so they're willing to say something ridiculous. I know what it is. They're drunk. Just just a moment's reflection shows you Peter could have gone a lot further here. Because in their very experience, there's no way that they actually believe that. Like, oh, this happens every time I'm at the bar, people get wasted, and they start having stunning linguistic ability and can speak in foreign languages that they never knew before. If you're under the influence of alcohol, not exactly straight speech coming out of your mouth, but slurred speech, and he's saying, you're willing to believe that this stunning linguistic ability to speak foreign languages that they never knew, that this happens to you every time you see people get drunk? That you're really going to say that you believe that? Even you don't believe that. It's this desire to not accept the obvious and therefore to be committed to stay in a position of unbelief. It doesn't even matter if the explanation makes sense or is probable. We're going to make it so we can quickly dismiss it. And how many times do you see that in the Bible? Where people are willing to say, we're asking for more signs. You haven't done enough, Jesus, to convince us yet. Again and again and again, hardened unbelief will close its ears and close the heart and shut the mind and say, there's no way I'm accepting that. The only way that people dead in their sins, hostile to God, are going to be willing to accept this is if the Spirit comes, who Jesus said, is going to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. So my plea to you, did you not miss this moment? This could be you this morning. I don't know how many people are hearing this and just say, I don't want to believe this. Can you just see what a totally terrifying position that is? Could you please for a moment have an open mind and heart and ears to see and listen to what Peter would say? To not be in this position of saying, I just refuse to believe and quickly dismiss. Look at what he says this actually is. He says they're not under the influence of alcohol, but under the influence of the Holy Spirit. This is the Spirit being poured out. This is Joel chapter 2. Look at verses 16 to 21. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh 
and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. Let's take that first. There's three movements in this text that Peter quotes from Joel. The first movement in verses 17 to 18 is showing what happens. What's the character of this new covenant moment when the Spirit is poured out? What Peter stresses here, you could say three terms. There's finality, there's generosity, and there's universality. Let me try to describe those. Show them in the text first. Verse 17, he says, and in the last days. In other words, this is final. This is irreversible. This is happening at a moment the the end times have come. Then he says, generosity, I will pour out my spirit. And again in verse 18, I will pour out my spirit. Here's what I want to do in linking these two terms, finality and generosity. Notice the metaphor. I think it matters. He's not showing that the coming of the Spirit is like a a drip, drip, drip from a faucet. He's not saying it's like the, the sprinkling or a light drizzle or a dew that's come. It's a tropical rainstorm. It's a cloudburst. It's a pouring out such that the Spirit is so decisively and fully poured out that it's irreversible. You're not going to, it's not going to dry up anymore. You're not going to be able to pat it down and have it go away. Like the Spirit has come and it's a cloudburst of His presence. There's an abundance, a generosity in the heart of God that in this last final time, the Spirit's presence isn't coming as a drip but as a downpour. Why? Coming to do what? Look at this point of universality. He says in terms of of biological sex or gender, it's sons and daughters. In terms of age, verse 17, it's young and old. In terms of social status, It's even on male servants and female servants. What does this mean? It's coming upon everyone in the new covenant community. It's not going to be like in the past under the old covenant where the Spirit would come upon kings or the Spirit would come upon prophets or the Spirit would come upon those who are going to build, say, the tabernacle or the temple. Suddenly in the new covenant, the Spirit is so poured out generously on all God's people. And what do they do? They prophesy. Let's just pause for a moment and make sure that we see and feel the newness of the new covenant. Under the old covenant, you had the Spirit working in in different people. Only men who were from the tribe of Levi could be priests. And only men could be kings. And then you had men usually being prophets, sometimes women prophesying. But here what you see 
is that Jesus has come as the prophet, priest, and king perfectly. The perfect king of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. The perfect prophet who not only spoke from God, but spoke as God. And the perfect priest who is the mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. And because we are now in Christ, the Spirit has been given so that we become prophets and priests and kings. All of us, men and women, all of us as God's people have the priesthood of all believers, meaning we have direct access to God. We don't have to go through somebody else to say, can you please bring me into God's presence, speak to God in my behalf. No, no, direct access to God. We all come boldly before his throne of grace because of the shed blood of Christ. And not only are we all priests, but we're all prophets. This says we all speak directly of what Jesus has done. We don't need somebody now, like in the past, a prophet to disclose like David did that the Messiah is going to die and rise, the Messiah is going to ascend. All of us among God's people are God's people because we're saved by the name of Jesus, meaning we know what he's done. We don't have to say when we're witnessing to somebody else, wait a minute, I can't tell you about Jesus. Let me get my pastor on the line and he can tell you. We're all prophets. We all speak of what Jesus has done. And, shockingly, we're all kings. We're all royalty. The Bible says this again and again. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 6, you're all going to judge angels. You have to take it to secular courts when you're all going to judge angels. Romans 16, the God of peace is going to crush Satan underneath all of your feet. Revelation 5, worthy is the Lamb who was slain, who has made us, every tongue and tribe and nation, a kingdom of priests, and they will reign on the earth. All of us, heirs, inheritors of all that Jesus has, and we will rule with him. What I'm trying to do here is show you that there is no perception of poverty in our identity if you're a Christian. Don't let anybody make you think that somehow you're lesser if you're not a pastor or elder, if you're not a man, if you're a woman, if you're young, if you're old. This is saying we, we all belong to God. We all have access to Him. We all can pray. We all can prophesy or herald, and we all are going to reign. Don't let this world define your worth. Let the new covenant truth of who you are, just set you free to know that you belong to him and you can speak of him and you can pray to him and you're going to rule with him. The Bible is a big book and part of the reason it's so big is because it takes so much time to explain what God has done for you, who you are now in him. So the Spirit has been poured out upon all of God's people, but now we have to ask this question. What about verses 19 to 21? 
there's a problem that I think we can see in this text, and I want to I pose it this way. Just have your thinking caps on for a moment. I promise it's worth it. So let me pose the problem, and then let me try to suggest a solution. Here's the problem. There are people who read verses 17 to 18, and they say, well, that's been fulfilled because the Spirit's been poured out, and it's still true to this day. And then they look at verse 21, and they say, and that's been fulfilled. We can call on the name of the Lord now and be saved that the Spirit's been poured out. But then they read verses 19 and 20 and say, that hasn't happened yet. It's just a partial fulfillment. What happened is that Peter really wanted to quote verses 17 and 18, and he really wanted to get to verse 21, but he just kept quoting verses 19 and 20, even though it has nothing to do with what he's saying. Now, I used to think that. I really did, because one of my favorite commentators, Douglas Moo, said that. He was talking about Pentecost and this fulfillment, and he said, Peter really only wanted to get to call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. So verses 19 to 20, it hasn't really been fulfilled yet. That's going to happen when Jesus comes back. And I just believed it. And I just want to encourage you, when I preach, don't just believe it. Don't go to people for their conclusions, but, but for their arguments. Because guess what? As a prophet, priest, and king, you can read the Bible. You don't just need pastors. So, so put on your thinking cap for a moment and, and see why this doesn't work. To say it's just partially fulfilled. What happened to me is I was, as I was looking at this again, I said, wait a minute. That doesn't make sense. Because elsewhere in Acts, Luke can quote what he wants to quote and then have like an ellipsis and quote later in the text. So it's not that he just has, he's forced to continue quoting. That doesn't work. And then I, as I was looking at, and I just commend this to all of you, when there's an Old Testament quotation, go back and look at the original. And what I notice is that Peter actually adds words to the quotation. He adds the words above and below, and he adds the words signs. And then he has this weird order. And this, is, this was the clue to me. Wonders in the sky above and signs on the earth below. Here's what, if you read the Bible and read the Bible and read the Bible, maybe, maybe word order sticks in your mind. Like, it's usually signs and wonders. Why is it the order wonders and signs? I counted, in fact, 53 times where in the Bible it's signs and wonders and only three where it's wonders and signs. And guess what? They're all in Acts 2. They're here in Acts 2, 19, and then again in verse 22, and then again in verse 43. Here's why I think that matters. Even in Acts, later in Acts, 4, verse 30, 5, verse 12, 14, verse 3, 15, verse 12, it's always signs and wonders. And yet three times in the Bible all in the same place, it's wonders and signs. Why? Every word is breathed out by God, and even word order matters. 
why. What Peter is doing, I'm convinced, is exactly what he did between this point where he says the Spirit will come upon all and they'll prophesy, and then he says David was a what? Well, he was a king, but he didn't say that. He was a prophet. He was a prophet. He spoke beforehand of the resurrection, Psalm 16, and the ascension, Psalm 110. So he's linking together those points between point one and point two. I think he's doing it again. And why he's doing it is that he wants you to see the wonders and signs in Joel's prophecy, verse 19, are actually fulfilled in the wonders and signs that took place in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. If you see what Peter's doing, you'll notice that he doesn't even pause for a second between verse 21 and verse 22 to say, God attested Jesus through many wonders and signs. It's as if Peter wants you to see this isn't a partial fulfillment, but a full fulfillment. So here's the question. What are these wonders and signs that took place in Jesus? Well, Peter first certainly has in mind the the miracles of Jesus. Jesus healed the sick, cast out demons, turned the water into wine, fed the 5,000, 4,000, walked on water, stilled the storm, raised the dead. There are wonders and signs everywhere. And John says he did much more than this And if they were all written down, all the books in the world couldn't contain them. So there's lots of God giving attestation or evidence that that Jesus is the Son of God, wonders and signs everywhere. But, But he's specific. There's wonders in the sky above and signs on the earth. We ought not to forget that when Jesus came, there was the cosmic sign of his star. And everybody saw it. It's a wonder in the sky that this star goes to the place where he's at. Or that in his death, don't forget about all the apocalyptic imagery. Remember, the sun was darkened at his death. Sign, wonder in the sky. Sign on the earth, it's the same order. The sun was darkened at his death, and then on the earth, the veil was torn. Wonder in the sky, sign on the earth. In fact, Matthew goes even further and says, at his death, not only was the sun darkened and the veil was torn, but there was an earthquake and people even came out of their tombs. The point is that this is earth-shattering, what has just happened? Don't, don't get all excited about at the end times there are going to be all these apocalyptic signs. He's saying, look at the earth-shattering significance of what Jesus has done. That all of these signs and wonders are appearing to show you this is a big deal. Not only that, wonders in the sky above, the ascension. Jesus goes on the clouds of heaven. When when do you see people doing that? Or, at Pentecost, Peter makes it emphatic that you have the wonder in the sky when from heaven you have the sound like a mighty rushing 
win. And, and what about fire? Well, you have tongues of fire, cloud of smoke. I think, again, the ascension. The only one, frankly, that I can't figure out is the, the blood and the moon turning to blood. I just scratch my head and say, I don't have a good answer to that. But the rest of the wonders and signs are enough to show me Peter's doing something here, and here's what I think it is. I'm afraid sometimes when we talk about what Jesus has done, in the church, familiarity just breeds maybe not contempt, but at least boredom. Oh, yeah. Death of Jesus, we know about that. Life of Jesus, we know about that. Resurrection, ascension, yeah, heard the story before. And what this is trying to do is to show you that as we study this, and as you have memory that that brings back what happened into the present, you just are stunned by everything that's happened. When we studied this together as pastors, one of the pastors had, I think, exactly the right response. He said, Jesus just got way bigger in my eyes. Like there's a whole generation of people raised to think about the, the wonders and signs that are coming at the second coming, and we're going to marvel at them. And this is saying, are you marveling now? Are you waiting to get excited about wonders and signs then, and you're missing the, the earth-shattering, eternity-significant thing that Jesus has done with the star that followed him at his birth and the wonders and signs in his ministry and the, the earthquake and the sun going dark and the veil being torn and the battle in the grave as heaven and hell are standing there hinging on this moment? And Jesus didn't lose. He won. He defeated the grave. And the greatest sign sometimes of spiritual health is that we're not bored with Jesus, but we're in awe of all that he's done knowing that he did it for us. He did it in our place so that when we read about the the cross and we read about the resurrection and we read about the ascension, we say, that's my salvation. That's what he's done for me to be with him forever. I'm not waiting for something to get excited about. I'm not waiting for that day when all of these, finally the exciting stuff is going to happen. No, right now. Can you believe it? All that Jesus has done I think what's amazing is that Peter says, you murdered the Son of God. That it was your sin that nailed him to the cross. The worst sin ever committed in all of history. And what we know is that he died for us and the surprising thing that we see here is the very character of God, how he treats the people that committed the worst sin in human history. Let me just put this into context for you, okay? I actually 
grew up in South Dakota, and I think it was an unwritten rule that you have to hunt if you grew up in South Dakota, and I actually enjoyed it. I'd go duck hunting with, with my dad, and sometimes we'd bring other people with us. And I was the kind of hunter that was very reserved and calculating. Like, I got this box of shells, and I had to pay for it with my own money, so I'm only going to shoot the things that, like, I got my limit. I'm going to be sure that I can hit it and make sure I can eat it. I brought other people along with me, though, that had an entirely different philosophy of hunting. They brought not one box of shells, but two, even though the limit was three birds. And it was almost inevitable. I'd be at one section waiting for the geese or the ducks, and and maybe I would be waiting for the shot over here where my friend was. Boom, 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 boom. One time I saw this black cormorant flying over, which you shouldn't shoot and you really can't eat. And I thought, oh, no, I hope my friend doesn't. Boom, 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 boom. We'd get done, and he'd be like, yeah, I ran out of shells halfway through. The difference between me just calculated and waiting and and him, he's trigger happy. Couldn't wait to kill things. We'd be in the car, and he'd stop when you see a blackbird. I want to blow him away. Here's the truth. God is not trigger happy. He's not just waiting to to judge and destroy and condemn. He's he's mercy happy to the people that committed the worst sin you could ever commit. Watch him as he says, it's time because of what he's done to be saved. God has poured out his grace, poured out his spirit because you're dead in your sins and you're bored with Jesus and you can't even see his glory and God has poured out his spirit so your hearts can be cut to the core when you see that our God is not damnation happy, but salvation happy. And you see, it's time to call upon his name. It's time to receive all that he's given. So that all of our sins can be washed away. So that all of our identity can be defined by him so that we can be his children. We can reign with him forever. I do want to speak for just a moment as I close to people that that just hear this and say, "Ah, I don't know. I'm not sure. Some of us are like in this room, like the man I read about in 2007 in the Utah desert was trying to do uh, kind of a survival toughness test. Went out in the Utah desert, had to go without food and water while you looked for a cave that had a pool of water in it that would basically save your life. Now, the guides have water in case something goes wrong, but this guy he got lost. He couldn't find this cave with the pool of water, and the guides refused to give him water because they thought he was doing fine, and that this was really going to help him, toughen him up. And the guy got so dehydrated, he became delirious and started talking to a tree, thinking it was a girl, and started hitting on the tree. Oh, there she is. 
He went a few steps further and dropped dead a hundred yards from the cave with the pool of water that would have been his salvation. And what I want to plead with you this morning is can you see how it's spiritual suicide and delusional to think somehow that you can have everlasting happiness by rebelling against God and trying desperately to make this world satisfy you forever. Right now, there's not a cave filled with water, but an empty tomb filled with everlasting water that Jesus has defeated death. Do you really think that somehow you can do enough to defeat the grave? That somehow you can have enough to make life worthwhile and forfeit your eternity in hell? Right now, my words are speaking to you to say, look to Jesus. The fountain filled with blood stands right before you and all who come in lose all their guilty stains. Come to Christ. It's time to call on the name of the Lord and be saved. And Christians, if you have people in your life who are not saved, you're like the people with the water, the guides around them, and you're refusing to tell them about Jesus, the only thing that can save them. We are the church called for all of us to speak the name of Jesus and not withhold any of the waters of life. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I pray. I pray this morning that our hearts would once again be, be cut to the core. For some of us that we would confess, oh, God, forgive me for how bored I've been with Jesus. for how much I've underestimated the earth-shattering significance of what he's done for me. God, forgive us for having our eyes look here and there to try to find awe and excitement when eternal life stands right before us and we turn away from it. God, I pray that our hearts would be united to find our satisfaction in Jesus this morning forever. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, 
spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.